Welcome to USIP ICIP, a weekly podcast with Northern Lights Winery founder Doug Bell, exploring the experiences from leaders in business, social media, and family. Now, here's this week's exceptional guest. Hello, my name is John Brink, and we are in our studio, a podcasting studio in Prince George. We have an interesting podcast today because we have two podcasters podcasting each other today. So I'll start by consent to introduce my podcast and then I'll give it over to the other person. My name is John Brink and we are podcasting on the brink from the capital of Northern British Columbia, Prince George. And I introduce Doug Bell. Thank you so much for having me on. This is going to be so much fun today. Um, And uh, I'm the podcast host for USIP ISIP, which is another Prince George-based podcast where we interview people from influence in social media, family, and business. And this is going to be such a great conversation, a battle of the podcasters, so to speak. Exactly. Yeah. And hopefully some great conversation. Yeah. No, I I like it very much, uh, Doug, because I always uh, encourage people to do podcasting and whatever the opportunity presents itself, we podcast with them, uh, you know, and today is obviously a special day. Mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit about yourself in terms of your background and you were born in Prince George, I'm quite sure. Almost. Um, so my family's from Prince George. My mother was born here uh, back in, a long time ago. I'm not going to say the year because yeah. I don't want to embarrass her. Yeah. Um, and uh, went away to Vancouver to go to school at UBC. Met my father, who was uh, from the Lower Mainland. Yeah. And they traveled around for a while. I was born in Kamloops, uh, yeah. BC. Uh, we went to Edmonton and then had an opportunity to start a group of companies here in Prince George. Yeah, Pat and Brenda are your mother. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Uh, many people will know my father, Pat Bell, who is a MLA in the area for about 12 years. Yeah. Uh, and he came back in 1988 with my mom and they started the Family Fast Foods group of companies. Yeah. Uh, which owned the Wendy's restaurants in Prince George. Yeah. Uh, we owned the Northern Lights Estate Winery. Two, two uh, Wendy's in Prince George, right? Two, two Wendy's restaurants And, and one in to Prince come George. in Millie Williams Lake. That's correct. Yeah, we're currently building a new uh, Wendy's restaurant in Williams Lake, BC. Yeah. We have a, a U-brew here called Hobby Brews. Where is that located? And that's located on Massey uh, uh, and uh, uh, Ferry there, close okay. to uh, Princess Auto. Okay. Uh, and then we also have a land uh, holding group of companies. So yeah. uh, we have had everything over the years from logging companies, farming companies, yeah. trucking companies, concession stands, Avis car rentals, and more. Yeah. And in 2007, I had the opportunity to take over our group of companies. Yeah. And so it's been a really fun journey since uh, uh, really I've been working in the business since 1988 yeah. uh, at the young age of three. I'm not sure if that was legal at the time. <laughs> uh, and and now uh, I get to lead the company for the last uh uh oh gosh now it's been about 15 years that I've yeah. been leading our group of companies. Yeah. So and and doing very well. Yeah, I think one of the especially and tell us a little bit about why did you bring all the wine? <laughs> well, I mean podcasting is more fun with wine, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh and that and that has been great. No, we actually uh developed out a concept to build uh Northern Lights Estate Winery, which is Canada's largest fruit winery. Uh, We started building on the concept in 2011, 2010, 2011, 
and actually uh, completed construction and opened in 2015. Yeah. Uh, and initially we thought this would be a pretty niche business where we would make some wine in the winter, uh, otherwise take vacation and holidays, yeah. and then sell it in the summer. And, and yeah. it would be a nice little uh, add-on business to our portfolio. Yeah. Uh, but what happened was we opened the business in 2015, sold out of wine in about two weeks, and started getting requests for that orders. That sent a message, right? Saying, yeah. hey guys, we like what you're doing. Yes, and, and it was really exciting to see um, the reception we received, not just from locals inside the Northern BC area, but also from all around BC, all around yeah. Canada, and even the world. I mean, we have uh, requests for our product in Texas and South America Amazing. and China and, and um, very many places. Yeah, I've talked to your dad, uh, you know, he was a good friend of mine mm -hmm. for many, many years. And, you know, so, and I said, you build the winery and the restaurant was fabulous and absolutely a beautiful, beautiful place, but it's on the wrong side of the river. There's nobody <laughs> there on that side. Well, it's Was fun. I wrong or what? Eh? <laughs> you, you, you know, uh, when we were building Northern Lights Estate Winery, uh, most people thought we were dreaming, but they didn't call it a dream. They called it a delusion. Delusion. Right. Yeah. And as we started constructing and building, people yeah. were surprised to see the success, but we were never surprised. Yeah. And uh, so what we've been able to do since that point forward is just you know, showcase and expand out uh, the idea of what entrepreneurship in Prince George can be. But right. really, like you are the the beginning uh, of the entrepreneurs in Prince George. I mean, not right. the very beginning, of yeah. course, there's been people for a long time. Yeah. But when you talk about success stories, it was people like you that we yeah. looked to right. for that influence and, and, you know, understanding that the road is never going to be easy. However, yeah. when you work together and you look for a community that's so supportive like Prince George, yeah. you can accomplish a lot. Yeah. And that's what we've always really admired about you and how you've built your own business. Right. And still am, you know, yeah. even at 82, right? So yeah. we're still poised to grow and getting bigger. And then we love Prince George and the region and all the potential as you do. And, 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 and this, you know, amazing British Columbia how lucky we are, right? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I've always wondered uh, um, from your standpoint, because you've seen so much change in the city over yeah. the years. And uh, for me, I mean, I've been here since 1988. So yeah. I've seen a lot, obviously. And yeah. uh, unfortunately, I'm getting a few gray hairs here. Yeah. I'm, I'm working my That's way up. That's a good sign, Doug. I, I think that it yeah. shows That's a little bit stuff. of experience anyways. Um, but I'm curious from your standpoint, has there ever been a better time to be an entrepreneur in the city or, or what's different now? Because it seems like there's more excitement here than there ever has been. Yeah, that, that's a good observation, actually. And a good question is that uh, I believe always that Penn George had huge potential. Even when I came here in July of 60, 1965, you know, with my one suitcase, two books, two sets of clothes, couldn't speak the language, didn't know a soul, didn't have a job. I, I counted my money, and it was at the Greyhound station about two blocks up this way, and I counted my money at least two or three times. I had $25.47, and, and but, but I had a dream. I was gonna build a lumber mill, and, and I did, you know, but it took me a long time. <laughs> but I, I was convinced that this was the area to go, and. Uh, and then the other part, uh, 
you know, that uh, we were liberated by the Canadians on April the 12th, 1945. And I was only four and a half, nearly five years old. And that made such an impression on me that from that point forward, I knew I wanted to go to the land of my heroes, Canada. And I always wanted to do that. And then I was going to go when I was 17 and my parents wouldn't let me. I was drafted into the, uh, to the uh, Dutch Air Force for two years, mandatory. And then I finally, finally could go to Canada when I was 24. And so when you first arrived, I mean, it was known in, in particular in the United States. It was the land of opportunity. Yeah. Canada may be less known, but very similar in terms of concept. But Prince George was very small back then. Yeah. I imagine that, you know, maybe some people would be frightened off by that. Maybe there wasn't as, as much opportunity because it was so small. Yeah. And that's, again, a good question. Because how did I get here is that my dad was in the lumber was managing a small lumber company. My grandfather was a master carpenter. And, and, and uh, he, I never got to know him, but I admired the stuff that he did. In churches, all the, 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 the carpenter work that goes into building, those kind of places, Stuck a specialist, and he was that. But he died when he was 45. And I never got to know him, but I knew him through his work. And I always impressed me. So uh, I was not good in school. So uh, uh, I went to work when I was 14, was trained as a furniture maker. And, and so lumber was always on my mind. So going to Canada, uh, I, I kind of felt that because of my lack of education formal, uh, you know, I, I failed grade three and I failed grade seven three times. So they said, okay, what are we going to do with this guy? You know, send him to the mentally challenged school or do we get him a job? So they sent me to a furniture factory. I became a furniture maker, but still had that dream of going to Canada and kind of felt I had failed in Holland for myself. And I had to prove to myself that I could do things, right? Mm -hmm. And so I... I had that dream of building a lumber mill and I knew enough about Canada that BC is the place you want to go. That's where the timber is. That's where the mill uh, lumber is. And so when I came to Vancouver in uh, late July of 1965 off the train, I went to the immigration department and there was a German fellow that I told I could speak German, I could speak English. And, and I told him what I wanted to do. He said, Prince George. Go to Prince George. That's how I came here. A den was a, a boom town. You know, it was kind of the place that you said, okay, when did you come here and when are you leaving, right? And, uh, you know, and, and I saw then and Prince George already then that because it was a center of British Columbia, it was a natural center for the region that there was lots of opportunity here then. Yeah. yeah, I had someone come up to me the other day and they were asking me um, some questions about like why I do the things that I do. Now, right. um, you know, as a I'm considered an entrepreneur, I'm still very young in my journey and I hope to accomplish a lot. But one of the things that, I, that I've noticed are fairly common among entrepreneurs is, is the passion for building something. And they don't always know what it is. And it could be a variety of things. I mean, yeah. Uh, you could be building a hamburger restaurant or, yeah. or you could be building a sawmill. 
And it, it has actually more similarities than than differences. Right. Um, it, do you feel the same way? Is that like part of your passion? Because at your age, you're still building new companies and, and trying yeah. to develop the region itself. I'm an entrepreneur by birth, virtually. You know, like even... And, and if you read my book, and I can show you a copy of it, and I know you have it, and you, mm -hmm. you've been a busy man as well, and then uh, it's still sitting there. But once you read it, you know, the book, then what you will, in particular in regards to that question, is that I was only about 10 or 9 or 10 years old, and I already, not very good in school, my mind was always elsewhere, ADHD. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't know then. I didn't find out until I was 57. But that's already, I couldn't sit still in school and wait. And, and so what I would do is I would distribute newspapers. I would collect bottles and all those kind of things to make a few pennies uh, in Holland, even at that age. And then I got in trouble because I found an old one shear plow. I somehow got it on a cart and I hauled it down to the old steel dealer and i sold it to him i got five goldens for it that's about two dollars <laughs> and then what happened is that at, at our house somebody called on the door and there was the police and then my mother's and they said well there's a problem here because uh, john sold your, your son right yeah he had this plow and it didn't belong to him. And she called me over. He said, John, okay, the police is here for you. And uh, so, and, and he said, did you take that plow? I said, yeah. And then I said, I got $5 for it or five gold. <laughs> they had a very difficult time not to kind of burst out and laughing. But mm -hmm. yeah, so I already was then an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. So it's by birth. I already was hustling and doing things. And if I sat in school, then I was thinking about what do I do now? And so it has become part of my life. I'm always, always that way. Yeah. And I enjoy that. Yeah. I have, you know, I didn't have as many of those experiences. I, I uh, didn't get arrested when I was younger, thankfully. But well, you didn't see the plow. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. If I saw the plow, I may have. Um, one of the things uh, growing up in a family of entrepreneurs, and you know, with my, my father who was building businesses constantly, yeah. is he would always drag me along, right? And that was something that was really, Exposure, yeah. it was really special because yeah. um, I wasn't given things for free. He right. would actually focus on, me as an individual and uh you know if i was going to get something i was going to earn it yeah so you know i didn't get an allowance i got a chance to work for five yeah. cents an hour he said yeah. i was worth every penny yeah. <laughs> uh, and i probably was i don't know um but i also got he also gave me the opportunity to make mistakes i remember yeah. uh working uh on his pickup truck uh, he was working on his logging truck and he said okay, I've got some lights I need you to wire into my pickup truck. Yeah. Um, so he kind of gave me a rough outline of what I was doing. I was probably no older than seven or eight or nine at yeah. the time. And I started uh, playing around with this wiring and, and bringing everything into the fuse panel. And and uh, he looked over and he saw smoke billowing out not, of the, of the cab sign, of the right? truck. Not a good sign at all. No. And, uh, and so he comes over and I get out. My hair is sticking up. And of course, I... I may have uh, uh, shocked myself a little bit. Uh, and he didn't yell at me. He didn't say, you know, you did it wrong. He'd say, well, you know, what did you learn? Yeah. Uh, 
don't try and do this without unplugging the battery. That was exactly. the first thing. Yeah. Um, and, and there are things like that over time where, where sometimes it's important um, for you to get the opportunity, but also to get the opportunity to fail, not just succeed. Exactly. Um, because that, you know, makes you smarter over time. Yeah. I remember another instance that, uh, that I was helping him out in his shop when he was, he was building some things. Uh, and, uh, and, and I kept on going back to him and asking him, I'd say, you know, what, what do you want me to do now? What do you want me to do now? What yeah. do you want me to do now? And, uh, and he looked at me and he said, I don't care, figure it out. Yeah. And, uh, and I said, well, what do you expect me to read your mind? And he said, he looked at me dead in the eye and he said, yes. Yes. <laughs> and for a lot of parents, they probably would sit there and think, how, how crazy is that? How rude was he to you? Yeah. But yet it actually kind of had an opposite effect on me where I started to think about, oh, well, you know what? I shouldn't be waiting for someone to tell me what to do. Right. I should think critically, figure it out, and then just start developing out a process. Exactly. Now, building business is all about that. It's all about that. Right? Yeah. I mean, I know that when you have a problem, and there's problems every single day in yeah. my organization and your organization, yeah. um, you know, we're almost like firefighters in a way. Yeah. Uh, then we have to just think critically, and there's no one who's going to tell us what the right answer is. No. We just got to figure it out. I always say the difficult we do right away, the impossible takes a little longer. Yeah. You know, and then then I'm a perpetual optimist. You seldom will see me that no matter what the circumstances may be, that I will find a way to figure it out and make it work. And if I'm pursuing something, if I can't get through the four door, for, uh, the front door, I go to the back door. If I can't get through the uh, back door, I go through the window. If I can't get through the window, I go through the chimney. But I'm going to get in or I'm mm -hmm. going to get it accomplished. And, uh, and that's usually the attitude that I have is be positive and uh, stay the course, never give up in all those elements, you know, so uh, are critically important, you know, and then uh, things, uh, you know, from time to time they get difficult and uh, that was actually the, 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 the reason for my book is not saying, oh, how successful is John, hurrah, hurrah. That's not what it's about. It's just about the absolute opposite as with all the challenges that I had, uh, you know, part of the war, war, the end of the war where we saw far too much and we had hunger and, 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 and all the other things associated with it. But you now see in the Ukraine was also happening there in Holland during the, uh, the uh, occupation by the Germans of uh, Holland. And uh, I still remember that now, the pain of hunger. And, uh, you know, we had nothing to eat. My dad, uh, you know, was caught in the bombing of Rotterdam and we didn't know for five years was dead or alive. And, and then uh, going with little gunny sacks in the railroad yards with my brother who was two years older than me, me, uh, my sister one year old, and every day we would go in there, pick up anything that was burnable or edible. Mm -hmm. And then the anxiety of my mom, you know, while there were hundreds of bombers overhead, uh, you know, going to Germany and bomb it, it creates that. Uh, those kind of things you never forget. And then the same time when the Canadians were liberating uh, my art, uh, my part of Holland, uh, you know, and the Germans were fleeing, they blew up the bridge in front of our house and uh, uh, some people were shot, our neighbor 
got a bullet right through his face and was hanging out of the window. We should have never seen that. Mm -hmm. And you saw uh, carts with legs and arms hanging out. This was never good. So you ended up with uh, uh, PTSD that stays with an individual for probably the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, you know, the fear of losing that protection of the mother who was the only one there because everybody else had no time for you. They were too preoccupied to keep their own self alive and uh, the, uh, you know, issues around the inner child. And then later on having, in addition to that, recognizing, was not successful in school, mm -hmm. but not until I was 57 that I found out ADHD. Mm -hmm. But then all along that way, you know, going to Canada, starting over new right from the bottom up, knowing that proved to myself more than anybody else that I could do it. And obviously it uh, involved all kinds of challenges. That's what this book is about. It's about that people say, well, because of this, that, and the other things, I can't do that. Or I'm, this is the reason that I will not be successful or all those kind of things. Mm -hmm. And I say, no, that should not be. Yeah. I'm, I'm writing another book right now that is uh, also on the same subject, you know, the finding your passion, living the dream. And that's about people that either already have a dream fairly early in life, like you and I had, you know, because of your dad and what he showed you. The same as my parents. My, my dad, uh, you know, was in the lumber and my grandfather. And so that already was my passion. But so many people, you know, are not sure what, what do you want to do? I don't know, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and then, uh, you know, the, the earlier you have a direction, you meaning the general public out there, in, in life where you want to go, the more you can focus on that, the better you will become at it likely. If at some point, which happens to people, you make a mistake, so many people in terms of choices of careers, so many people, you know, say, I hate my job, you know, and can mm -hmm. you imagine if you hate your job, it affects everything around you. So that book is coming out in uh, next July. Yeah. yeah. And you, you have been so generous with sharing your experiences and your knowledge and really um, trying to do it for a benefit of other people, not necessarily for a financial return. Um, you've got the two books, of course, Against All Odds and ADHE uh, Unlocked. And what's the name of your new book coming out? The title is not quite sure, but I believe it will say Finding Your Passion, Living the Dream. Mm. Right. And so when you're creating these these books and uh, I, I'll kind of stick on against all odds, because I think the, the principles in there are so simple, yet they are applicable to everybody. Correct. Right. Yeah. Um, are, are you writing it as in you're trying to reach maybe your former self or are you trying to reach today's individuals? Because, of course, People growing up today didn't have the same experiences that you had. And, and in a way, that's actually created maybe a disadvantage for them because they didn't have the challenges they had to overcome to understand what hard work would be to achieve their, their great sex success. Yeah. And, and I, I think, uh, you know, the good question is that I do it for those and others likely, you know, that... The challenges that I had and the difficulties became to me an asset more than a liability. If without that, and not being very good in school and already starting work with my hands when I was 14, 
gave me a huge advantage here in building my mill, physically being involved in and all those sort of things. And so uh, the reason I, I wrote the book is that for all those that question themselves, if they can do it or if they are good enough or what is, uh, you know, anything that you want to accomplish, whatever that may be, if you want to be the best lumber pilot in the world, you can be that too. And when I was a lumber pilot for quite a number of months, actually, uh, then I was going to be the best one that was there. That was always my objective. Yeah. And, and, and so my message is to, uh, you know, the, the population in general, and especially young people, is that, you know, that I want to tell them the story and how quickly things can change that all of a sudden the people in the Ukraine that we see now on TV never anticipated what would happen there until their whole life changed. And the same, just the experience that I had, uh, you know, and, and I was born during the war, so I didn't know anything else, but mm -hmm. for my parents, how quickly, you know, a perfect life changed into something altogether different. Mm -hmm. That's why it is also important to me, uh, Doug, that uh, every year I go, I've done for the last 20 years, at least speak to four or five schools in the week of the 11 to talk about uh, how lucky we are and what is the purpose of the two men's minutes of silence mm -hmm. and what that, does that really mean? And, the, and, that, and what happened to those that were there and, uh, you know, and how quickly everything can change around it and to appreciate what you have, you know, because uh, that's what happened then. It happens in the Ukraine and appreciating the things that you have and looking around and your family and all the things and the opportunities are so important. It's so much about perspective, right? And, yeah. and today we are probably more than in any time in history focused on so many things that we can't control. And a, a war is a good example of something that you couldn't control, no. um, which completely changed your life, yeah. but it had a direct impact on you. Yeah. Um, there are so many uh, components of the things that I think create anxiety um, today, that create fear, that create uncertainty, um, that are, they're, they're indicating situations that don't necessarily affect people, and yet they let it affect them in their yeah. life. And, uh, and social media has done an, an incredible job of bringing the world together. Yeah. Um, and we are able to see and hear so many different perspectives. Yeah. Uh, there are obviously lots of uh, people who don't agree with, with the way that has been moderated, and that's yeah. understandable as well. But now that we are, are so focused on what's happening externally to our own lives, uh, we're also creating scenarios where people are less fulfilled with what is happening within their own self. Yeah. And so how do you uh, challenge people to overcome these obstacles and make sure that they keep in perspective what really matters to them? I mean, obviously family, friends, and, yeah. and the things in your own community. The other thing about it is, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, to really go down to basics, even for young people, is that, uh, you know, uh, finding your passion is important. Whatever you do, do it well. I don't care if you sweep the floors or you're a cleanup man. I've done all of that, but I always made sure I did it well. And I remember from this one person, you know, that 
my dad had this, with all due respect, I'm an old guy, but he had, <laughs> for the purpose of this conversation, uh, he had this old guy, probably not even as old as me, who was retired and, and he was a, a, a very good mechanical individual that's, that they had a, a molder or a planer where they made, uh, you know, moldings and, uh, and he was very good at what he was doing. And, uh, you know, I was, uh, uh, I was supposed to pick him up in the morning from his house in a car, bring him to work. When I picked him up, he, uh, I would say, good morning. And he would say, yeah, hi. And, and for the rest, he wouldn't say anything. And then I dropped him off at the mill. And uh, then in the evening, I was supposed to pick him up. And then as I drove towards the mill to pick him up, I always remember, I, I watched where he is. I opened the door and there he is standing there and, and, and looking at the planner. And then as he walks towards the door, halfway to the door, he stands back, he turns around and he stands there, he looks at the planner. And he just stands there and he looks at the planner. I thought, what the hell is he doing? And they just stand there. And then he turns around and I was ready to go home. And then uh, I dropped him off and uh, why was he standing there? Because of pride in his job. So before he left, he made sure that he polished up the planer and he made sure everything was in its place. And he was standing there contemplating what he had done that day and was getting ready mentally for it for the next day. That's what is pride. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and I say to younger people and other people, Enjoy what you're doing and make it, do it well because it is so rewarding if you do. And, and if you aspire to a job, whatever that may be, then enjoy it. If you don't like the job or your career, hence uh, follow your passion, living the dream. That's the whole idea. Create that passion because if you then enjoy it, then all the people around you enjoy being in your life. If you hate it, hate it, you go home and you take it with you. You hate your job. Mm -hmm. And then what I say, find your passion, living the dream. And the process sometimes in finding it is that somewhere on the way you can say, you know something, I really don't like this doc. So what I'm going to do is I have made a decision. I'm going to go back to school. I said, mm -hmm. first class, that's yeah. what you should do. I've seen this so often and, and for uh, my, myself, my friends, my family, but in particular, I see this often with employees, Barry, because as an employer uh, uh, with over 170 employees at any given time in the city of Prince George, um, I get to see a lot of different personalities. Right. And one of the things that has occurred, I think over the last few years, and this is in uh, uh, no disrespect to any uh, generation, because yeah. I don't believe in you know as millennials or Gen X or no one is lazy. It's like no. we're we've set them up in a way to be successful or unsuccessful Correct. ourselves. Um, but one of the things that is that there is a little bit of impatience now in the work culture that we want to get to a certain level faster, yeah. right? And so we sometimes will we believe that we can skip past. Um, a few steps that you need to learn to gain experience to be yeah. able to do things. And, and what you see often is, is kind of two different workplaces. One workplace where you have people working there just because it's the most amount of money they can get or you know, they don't have any passion in it, but they believe it will bring them the lifestyle that they are so wish, yet they're not passionate about the work and therefore over a period of time, 
you see that reflected in their work. Yeah. Uh, and then there's another type of, of workplace where people are very passionate about what they do. And so they're willing to work a few extra minutes at the end of the day. They take a lot of pride in what they're doing. They spend more time uh, you know, honing their craft and working with their employer to develop into you know, a greater person. Uh, and, and that is reflected in, in their home life and it's reflected in their work life. But ultimately, I think that as an employer, we have somewhat of a level of responsibility to actually uh, tell our employees this and, and to go to them when we see them you know, struggling and say, you know, you know, I see you're struggling. Maybe this isn't the right job for you. Not that I want you to leave. You might be a great individual, um, but could I support you in finding the right position for exactly. you? And, and it could be within the, the company yeah. or maybe it's not within the company. Yeah. But if we're able to do that, then other employees will see that and they'll see that our, our passion for supporting our people right. more. And, and then hopefully that will actually end up uh, helping our own business, even if it means losing somebody good. It's, it's again a form of management, right? So that, but I've always believed, uh, you know, I'm no, no different than anybody else. To me, I have to go to work. I enjoy my work. That's what I do, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, so uh, the same, I'm just part of the company. It always starts with me. I respect everybody. And, and uh, you know, that, that does not mean to say that I don't take my management job serious. I would say there's two me's. One, I own the company, and the other one I'm managing, and I'm, I do a good job of managing. Mm -hmm. and, but it always starts with respect. I have no, uh, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, genders, uh, 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 you know, I'm in, in terms of, uh, no prejudice in any form, whatever that may be, I will always respect people as a foundation. And at the same, we demand the same in return. And that's the culture of the company. And everybody that knows me knows that that's what we do in our companies. And uh, at the same time, if I can help in terms of making choices, either directly or indirectly related to the company, I always say they should be free to ask questions. If you see something in the company they don't understand, my door is always open. Just ask me, you know, they, uh, as to why are we doing whatever we are doing, so that at least I don't want anybody to go home and then lay awake at night because they don't know what is happening in the company. Mm -hmm. What are we doing? You know, and, and uh, because, uh, you know, because we are their peace of mind that's, you know, that helped them in making, their, meeting their commitments. And, uh, and I think we owe that to an employee, you know. Yeah, I agree entirely. And I, I think that that statement, open door policy, is, is one of the uh, most misunderstood or misused um, forms that a company has. Every company out there, I, I don't care what company it is, will tell you they have an open door policy. Right. But it's actually about how it's implemented. Um, and I had this uh, instance even more recently uh, where I've had employees uh, going through an exit interview or talking to them later on and, uh, and, and them saying, well, hey, like uh, you have an open door policy, but then here's all these things I didn't tell you. And so what it's taken back to me is that I actually have to instigate the, that open door. A lot of times it's actually not about them coming through my door. 
It's about me going through their door. And so I've made a much more concerted effort in the last few years to really go to each of my employees or each of the key employees and ask like, how are you doing personally? Like, how are you doing professionally? Do you have the tools you need? What would you like to accomplish? What would you like to see happen? And sometimes that changes. Like when you meet someone and they're young and they're excited and they get into the company and they start uh, going down their journey, they may have the, the wish and the desire to take over the company. And so they will work really hard and they'll, and they'll do everything that you ask of them, even more. And they take a lot of pride in their work. And then after a couple of years, you might see things are kind of sliding a little bit and you go back and you talk to them and you say, do you, know, do you still really want to get to this place? And they'll say, well, you know what? I, I've got a, I'm married now and I've got uh, children and I need to get out of here by 4.30 to make sure that I can go to this sports event or, uh, you know, or make sure I can put them down to bed at night. And so the, they change over time and it's up to me or you as leaders to actually meet them where they are and find out ourselves, not wait till they come to us. There was another uh, thought that came to my mind this morning. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about how uh, often over the years I've heard somebody um, tell me that, yeah, I'm not, I'm leaving my company because they didn't promote me. And I would often ask them like, did you talk to them? Did you, do they know that you wanted to be promoted? Mm -hmm. And I found that often, um, and this is for many of my friends and even myself at times, um, although I've been fortunate to be the leader of the company for a long time, that they will believe that you should know these things. Uh, You know, how could they not know? Or, you know, I've worked here for so long, I should be moving forward into the company. Often there are kind of two things that I've found that are, uh, that are mistakes that are made from, from the employee side. And generally that's because it hasn't been communicated well enough. Number one is you actually have to talk to them. You need to tell your employer what your desires are, where you want to go, what you want to achieve. And then it's up to them to actually tell you how you're going to get there. Right. Um, and, and so great leaders will already know these things or they will reach out to the person and find out on a regular basis. Uh, And then the second thing, and I think this is a little less understood, is that most of the time when people are trying to get a promotion, I have found that they actually are trying to impress their boss. All of their attention and focus is on impressing their boss. When the fact is that most of their, most if not all of their attention and focus should be on their key employees, either below them or at their level, and creating a, a success within their organization on what they can control. And by doing so, their boss is going to actually acknowledge them and they're gonna notice them because they are doing so much more for the company by supporting the people within it rather than just trying to focus on the person above them and, and impressing them by doing whatever they want. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think this is these two things could be implemented by almost anybody yeah. uh, to create success within their organization and, and then they will be rewarded by promoting promotions. Yeah. And I agree with you. And, uh, you know, but I usually say inside a company, sometimes, you know, because there are so many employees in so many different locations that having direct contact sometimes is difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then it becomes important to make sure that the managers in those dep- different departments make clear that the avenue to success in the company is this way. And then the other part that I usually say uh, to people is that the cream always comes to the top. It doesn't happen, you came here today and therefore tomorrow, 
there are certain expectations. If you stay the course, keep doing the right thing. To me, it was always important, uh, even when I was piling lumber and couldn't speak the language, uh, you know, for nine months piling lumber off uh, uh, four inch boards by 10 inch wide, 18 to 24 foot long on strips that were dipped in PCBs to a depressed mold. I was soaking wet from the toes to the top of my hair. I knew, I knew it would take just a matter of time until I would be noticed. And so, uh, and, and I did, I, how I did make the impression is simply because I was there every day. I came early, I left late because I always wanted to make sure my work site was clean. And when I became a supervisor of the green chain, you know, then I made sure everybody's location didn't make me popular actually. And then I became next, my objective was to become a lumber grader. The next stage was to become a sawmill foreman. And within a year and a half from coming, staying here with my $25 and 47 cents, uh, I was the superintendent of the mill. Wow. And then another year later, I was a general manager of a sawmill in Watson Lake, Yukon, of all places, and part owner. And then, uh, you know, so, so what I'm saying is, uh, what you're saying is absolutely correct, is saying that my philosophy has always been cream will come to the top, you know, so that then for me personally, as I pursued my career in different places is, I needed to get on the picture. If I keep consistently do the good job, then I will be noticed. It may not be quite as quick as I'm hoping for, but I will be noticed. Why? Because I keep doing the same thing over and over again. Mm -hmm. And part of that is uh, what I say in here, which is important, that, that has always been the foundation of my life. Attitude, passion, work ethic, what follows is success. Mm -hmm. You know, the, uh, the other thing as you look at this, uh, you know, the, uh, so, you find the same thing. If you look at the book, can you see what the price of the book is? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's $25.47, which is exactly how much you had when yeah. you first came here. And that's the same on the other book, so I have my price of $25.47. I mean, and with inflation, you got to imagine that, that that's a deal today. Yeah, it's, and you're absolutely right. So, Doug, uh, uh, Tell me a little bit more about your wine that you have here mm -hmm. and, and you know, th this amazing things that you guys have accomplished. You know, the, <clears throat> I said it to your dad at one point, I said, you know, the, you know the, I can't understand why you put it on the wrong side of the river, but it was the right side because it's the sunny side of the mm -hmm. river. Yeah. And, and then the location is unique especially the way you guys build it. And then it is so well lit up for those people in Prince George, there are probably not many that have not driven by it, even over River Road to kind of see it there. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's, it's amazing. The other thing that I found out is that, you know, that A, when you guys started doing this, is I always say you cannot be successful that, or you cannot succeed, or you cannot, Soar like an eagle if you work with a bunch of turkeys. <laughs> you know, you need good people and a good team around you. Yeah. And and I think you guys did that in, in a number of locations. And then the other part about, uh, I'm not 
uh, I don't drink, but uh, you know the uh, you know the wine that you make is very unique. I had no idea how popular it is, and then you guys also on a national level are rated very highly, mm-hmm. number one in a lot of cases uh, because of the different products that you manufacture. Yeah. So uh, first off, uh, many people wonder what is fruit wine, right? Yeah. Because they think all are grapes fruit. And, and the yeah. fact is that, um, that there's really two distinctions within the wine world. Okay. There's grape wine and then there's fruit wine, which is made from all fruits other than grapes, but that also includes vegetables, right? It could include flowers in some cases, right. but it's just, it's non-traditional wine. Right. Uh, fruit wine has been around uh, from before grape wine was ever developed. Right. Uh, and, uh, and it is very common occurrence across the world. Uh, but in the, in the wine world, uh, there was quite a few years where Fruit wines were considered inferior to grape wines because they were sweet, sugary, and juicy. Right. Uh, often would give you a headache at the end of the night. Uh, right. And they weren't considered very high quality. Okay. Uh, so when we first started developing Northern Lights Estate Winery, we actually didn't know if we would be a fruit wine or a grape wine. Uh, and we uh, started doing a lot of research. So through the first few years, we visited over 80 wineries and in BC, Alberta, uh, Saskatchewan, even into the US. And one of the thing, uh, things that we noticed was that there wasn't a lot of fruit wines, um, but there was a demand for fruit wines. Um, but what it really was actually was we went into a winery, which at the time was the most northern winery in BC, located in Cache Creek called Bonaparte Bend. And the owners were incredible people, very, very friendly. And they invited us in. And when we first heard it was fruit wines, we almost walked out. Uh, we, were, we were kind of in the same place that so many other people uh, are today and, and were previously before we came around in terms of thinking of fruit wines as inferior products. Um, but they said, come on, come try some of our products and before you decide on what it is that you're going to like or not like. Uh, and so we went in with an open mind and we tried the products and we were just blown away because they had the same body acidity, tannin, and structure uh, and complexities that you expect out of grape wines. Um, they weren't as sweet as we expected. They didn't give us that headache the next day. They were just exactly what we expected out of grape wines, but there was an infinite number of new flavors. And, and so this was really exciting to us. At the same time, we took about 80 trees out of my dad's front yard and we started planting uh, a, a bunch of different fruits and grape varieties before that were northern yeah built, before. Befo- before we built northern lights winery right. and uh, we started looking at what would grow well here uh, what did it taste like and what could we make and we came to two conclusions number one fruit wine had an exceptional opportunity because there was a relatively low supply and there was significant demand that wasn't being met at the time. The second thing was that although you could grow grapes in northern BC, in Prince George in particular, that you wouldn't necessarily get the sugar content and the acidity that you required to make the highest quality wines. So for us, it was actually a pretty easy decision in the end to move towards becoming a fruit winery. And uh, so we actually had to really start from the beginning to make sure that we were going to be the highest quality product potential that we could be. And so we went out and we acquired um, our winemaker, uh, Christine LaRue, who's an incredible individual, incredible human being. 
um, who had the pedigree of a high quality winemaker from the grape wine world um, and because she was actually trained in the old world. She was trained in the Bordeaux region of France at Petrus Winery, which is one of the most famous oldest wineries in the region. Wow. Um, she then went to, the, to uh, uh, Australia, made wine there. California made wine there and learned all the different techniques. And how, then, did, how did she end up here? Well, she's Canadian. She's actually Quebecois. Right. Um, and she came back to BC and took over some of the largest wineries uh, in the area, in Niskillen, Grade Monk, and others, and did um, significant portions of their pr uh, winemaking production. Um, and around 2000, she decided she was going to move not away from grape wines, but what she wanted to do was we, she wanted to help winery owners. There was a huge explosion in small scale wineries at the time. And what was, was important and interesting was there was a lot of winery owners who could not afford to have their own winemaker come in. No. So what they wanted to do is they wanted to learn how to make wine themselves. And that's yeah. what she did. Yeah. So she took all of her experience in, in grape winemaking from across the world, and she started training winery, winery owners to make their own wine in small batches. Uh, one of those owners uh, was Miranda Halliday from Elephant Island uh, in the Naramata Bench. And that was previously the largest fruit winery in the province. So uh, she started playing around with fruit wines and, and she found that she could do all of these things that she was doing with grape wines, with fruit wines, and create that new expectation that people had. Um, and so uh, fast forward 15 years later, uh, we were out looking for the highest quality winemaker we could. And she put up her hand and said, I'm going to help you do this. And Very much she, did. Yeah, she was in Penticton and she still lives there today. Yeah. Uh, and uh, what was interesting was uh, we came to her with our amateur recipes that yeah. uh, Pat and I had been uh, working on for yeah. the past few years. And we said, okay, we need to do this, but we need to now do this on a much larger scale. Yeah. Uh, and with the quality people expect from the VQA or the Vintners quality assurance um, within the BC wine sector. Uh, and she said, let's do it. Uh, and she, we just got to work. We started working with her recipes. Did she come to it. Prince George then? She, she comes to Prince George often and started training me and uh, later on our director of operations who was employee number one with our company um, and is now a partner in the business, Noemi yeah. Touchette. And, uh, and over time, we were able to develop these recipes uh, that I think just blew people away when they tried it for the first time because yeah. they weren't expecting it. Um, so, I mean, when you think about high quality wines, one of the biggest things that people are looking for is the experience that they're gonna have with it. Yeah. And so when you're drinking wine, what you're actually trying to do is you're trying to create an experience um, and that starts with what is the food pairings? What is the setting? Like, am I bringing this bottle of wine to my partner's parents for the first time? Yeah. Am, I, am I bringing this bottle of wine to a friend's house for dinner? Or am I just doing it for a girl's night? And each one of those experiences um, are created and enhanced with the wine. Yeah. Um, so I, I see wine not necessarily as a product, right. but as an experience. And so what we've tried to do is create a portfolio which can interact with each of those experiences in a way that people are going to feel good. So how many different wines you make? So we, Here yeah. you have one, two, three. 
Yeah, we actually make about 20 different wines and each wine is, is developed with a very specific circumstance in mind. Yeah. And that could be a specific food pairing. It could be, you know, what type of consumer is going to enjoy this? Is this a younger must consumer? must be quite a process. It, it is, but it's a fun process because yeah. what we find is that over time, we've had to add new wines into our portfolio when we see a market that's being underserved. And sometimes we get it right and sometimes we don't. So, so a lot of it is water. Yeah, so what you do when you're making these wines or, or yeah. any wines in general is you have to first select the best quality fruit. And uh, I think one thing that's uh, interesting is that most people think of fruit wines as this is a blueberry wine yeah. or this yeah. is a rhubarb that's wine. That's I would think about. That's right. Yeah. But yeah. you would never say that in the grape wine world. You would say this is a Cabernet Sauvignon, right? This is a Pinot Gris. And those are just different types of grapes. Right. So first we actually have to go down to the very basics, which is what type of fruit is it? And then what variety of fruit is it? So how do you express that then in, in the bottle? Well, yeah, yeah it's, it's very interesting and it depends on the type of wine. So you'll notice that a lot of our names, like in this case, the Cuvée Noir, which is our red wine master's blend, right. isn't named after the fruit all the time. Sometimes, sometimes it is. For instance, our cranberry wine, which is extremely successful during the turkey holidays right. is named after cranberry because that's the experience we want to get with it but other wines like our seduction is about an emotion or a feeling you're going to have so the strawberry rhubarb wine that's correct yeah yeah and so what we do when we're developing out the wines is we really try and think about who's going to drink it what's the experience we want and it comes all the way from the name to the variety to the finishing of the fruit Right. Now, when we're making the wine, of course, we're going to have all of the fruit. We bring it in. Um, uh, we actually have four orchards that we own or lease um, all the way from Prince George to Chilliwack, BC. Oh, wow. So we're across, across the province. Um, and then we get the, the varieties, the fruits. And when we harvest is also very important because we want to get the right sugar content, the right acidity yeah. and the right flavors. And when those three things align, we say this is a very good year. This right. is the best quality fruit we can hope for. Right. We harvest and then we will actually freeze that fruit for about six weeks at a minimum. Is now, that as part of the process? Yeah. And that's a little bit different than in the grape wine world. In the grape wine world, you're typically harvesting and pressing out fresh fruit. Um, and the reason is that most grape wines, you don't want skin contact during the fermentation process because okay. it can provide different flavors and bitterness that you don't necessarily want in the wine. Okay. But with our fruits, the vast majority of them, we actually want to include the skin of the fruit when we're fermenting it. Okay. And of course, fermentation is the process. What of, is fermenting? Yeah. So it's the process where the yeast eats the sugars that are naturally occurring in the fruit and creates alcohol. Is that when they walk in it? Yeah. Uh, no, <laughs> no, that's no, usually you're kidding. pressing it out, but that is really fun to watch as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, of course, we don't have to do that anymore. No, so don't no. worry, my feet have not been on your wine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, so we do the fermentation process with the skin on. And so by freezing the fruit, we can actually unlock flavors, aromas, nutrients, and colors from the skin of the fruit, which actually enhance the quality of the product we get. Interesting. And so this is one of the differences that, that we uh, started with when we were learning how to make wine in this new age. Right. Uh, the other thing that we did was was when the wine was being made is we actually had to really think about what was the blend going to be to get the outcome we wanted. Yeah. 
And any one fruit can have really great characteristics and characteristics that we don't necessarily want to include. Right. You, you were looking at the seduction wine, which is our strawberry rhubarb. Right. And most people, when they think of a strawberry wine, they've got that bright red color with a ton yeah. of sugar and sweetness yeah. and fruity aromas. We want some of those things, but any if you had too much strawberry in it, it wouldn't pair very well with a lot of food because it would be too sweet and too fruity. Right. So we've added uh, almost 80% rhubarb into that wine. Right. And rhubarb itself doesn't have as much fruit flavors, but what it does have is really great acidity and balance. Okay. So by doing it in that way, we can take the best qualities of the rhubarb, the best qualities of the strawberry, and make Come a wine on. that is actually more like a traditional grape Is that the middle one then? Yeah, that's the middle one. It's got and that nice rosé color. And that looks color. white to me. It doesn't look like... Yeah, we call it rosé, but in the fruit yeah. wine world, there's not really such thing as red and white and right, rosé. Right. We right. actually just kind of call them based on what the, the fruit color is going to be. Right. And that's really fun with fruit as well, is that you're going to have so many infinite numbers of colors, aromas, flavors. So became the hobby the business... Because that's kind of the way it yeah. looks to me, is that all of a sudden you push the button there that was interesting, mm -hmm. and then it became, there is a market for it, and then the market became larger and larger, and then as you guys had the right people working, putting the product together, it became very successful, mm -hmm. and now the challenge is now you have to get bigger. Well, I mean, that is always the challenge with any any business right person. Right-sizing yeah. is the key. Yeah. You, you, you say, like, if you're not growing, you're dying. That's not always the case. No, no. But uh, in general, I mean, I'm a young guy. I want to accomplish a lot. I think that one of the fun things about this part of our business, of course, we have lots of other segments of our business, but in the winery side, we're doing a couple things. First off, we're making a great quality product, which is redefining a market. We're right. educating people and we're creating experiences across Canada. Right. And that's really exciting for me. But number two is we're also showcasing Prince George. Yeah. And this has been, this was very important. As a matter of fact, um, I, I traveled for about a month every year uh, from the time I, I graduated high school uh, until uh, uh, 2019 when COVID started and my, my son was born. Um, and one of the things that always surprised me when I traveled is every time I came back to, to the city of Prince George, I was just shocked and, and amazed and awed at what an amazing place we live in. Right. And I didn't feel like we were getting the respect and, and the recognition within the city that we should. Right. So another thing that was really kind of a part of my passion is agritourism because in, in Prince George, but across the world, um, food is something that brings everyone together. Right. And whether it's the farms that make the food or the table that we sit at and eat, right. that is something that, that everyone can connect with in the entire world. Right. And so I thought it would be really fun if we were able to bring an agritourism uh, business to Prince George. And so I, I was down in, in Kelowna recently and, and we were tasting some of our wines. And every single time you mention this is BC's most northern winery located in Prince George. They are always like, oh, wow, that's exciting. I didn't know Prince George had a winery. And so we're creating experiences and we're actually bringing recognition to Prince George right. for something that is so that people love. Right. And uh, since we started doing this, we've attracted people from across North America to come to this city 
just to experience our winery. Right. Uh, and I don't know that there's much better feeling that you can get right. when someone comes in and they tell you, you know what, I never, I didn't enjoy wines before, or, you know, I enjoyed wines, but when I tried yours, it really became the one that I go to. Yeah. It's like, I remember I went to uh, your your winery and my cousin was getting married and I had never heard of it before. Yeah. Um, but then I went up and I tried the product and I just thought it was incredible. And oh, by the way, you're on the Nechaco River, which right. flows into the Fraser, which goes all the way down to Vancouver. So we're connected in this way. Um, and and so you create these experiences and, and, and really great feelings about the city. Right. And I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Unique. Mm-hmm. And, and so, and what else have you got there in the other one? So, I, I mean, one of the cool things about being a, a fruit winery is we can do things differently. Yeah. So now we're producing products in cans, in pouches, um, in different size bottles. And what this is doing is we're just trying to bring it and make it more convenient and easier for so more people. Yeah. So, but is, so this is wine? Yeah, so that's wine. And, and so one of the things that, that we recognized when we started to build out our portfolio was that people use wine in different scenarios. So for instance, um, the, the pouch that you're holding is incredible when you're going on a camping trip, you're going out to yeah, the lake. Uh, you don't have to have a glass bottle. This is actually more environmentally friendly and it, and it holds wine for a much longer period of time because there's less oxygen contact as you're draining the wine out. And so that, that's something that fits a very specific event uh, for people. We also have a canned product, which is great for people when they're going out um, and they don't want to have it in a glass, right? right. If they're going to a friend's house um, or they're, they, maybe they want that wine experience and the white wine feeling, uh, but they actually want more flavor than you know, some of the other products on the market. Right. So we're, just, we're trying to meet the consumer where they are um, and make sure that we have the right product market fit. And it isn't much different than, you know, you producing lumber right. in, a, in a way. It's you have, you have a market and you have to know what is it that the consumer wants? How yeah. can I best service yeah. that with the materials yeah. that I have? Uh, and then ultimately, uh, you need to listen to your customer and, and see if they respond in a positive way, you keep doing it. So where do you go next on, with the, the wines? So right so, now, yeah, we are currently at max capacity within our existing production right, facility. Right. So we uh, we actually purchased a property on the Fraser River about three years ago and have now been developing it because, of course, here, if in, you're, Prince George. here in Prince George, and if you're going to have a great quality product, you need the fruit to support that. Yeah. And so we've now developed out about 15 acres of it and we continue to plant every single year. Okay. Uh, and what we're doing is as those, uh, uh, as those plants grow and we can produce more fruit, we're gonna be able to produce more wine. So right. that's gonna allow us to uh, build a new facility, which we think we're gonna be able to triple our production from where we are today. That will put us in the top 10 wineries in British Columbia in terms of total production and sales. Right. And uh, we hope to do that in the next few years. And then from there, we hope that we will become one of the most notable wineries potentially in Canada over right. time and redefine this industry, which is fruit wines. Yeah, yeah. unbelievable. Yeah, far beyond what I had thought, you know, the. Uh, uh, you know, the yes, amazing product and uh, amazing success story, really. Uh, yeah. You know, and, and all of that uh, for our guests, uh, far and wide, that all happens in Prince George. <laughs> so, Doug, uh, that then being said, uh, you know, we, uh, 
I enjoyed our podcast. I enjoyed mm -hmm. meeting you. We had never met really officially before, I don't think. Yeah, we've, you know, we uh, travel in a lot of the same circles and we've got an opportunity to interact, but never on this level. And no. it's so much fun when you get to get into the deeper yeah. conversations that yeah. we've had today. And, and I enjoyed your podcast and, uh, you know, and, and I enjoyed doing it together uh, as a whole new concept to our guest. And, uh, you know, and we should stay in touch and, uh, uh, you know, and, and kind of stay in touch on the podcasting as well. And yeah. then, uh, you know, at least make sure uh, every so often, uh, you know, we try to do something together. Yeah, thank you, John. And, and it's so, so much of a pleasure for me to get to interact with you because you are a legend in the Prince George uh, region. And also, I think you're an inspiration to many. What you've accomplished in your career, what you continue to accomplish, I think really tells you that there is no limit. Uh, and if you want to accomplish something, work hard and you'll get there. Absolutely. Doug, thanks. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to You Sip, I Sip. Please hit the five-star rating and leave us a review. If you'd like to learn more about Northern Lights Winery, text us at 604-670-4046 or visit us on social media at Northern Lights Winery.